Well, good morning. Great to see you guys this morning. Before I get into our message today, I want to introduce you to a couple of folks that are here with us today. Uh, we have the, the honor of having our state treasurer, John Kennedy, here with us this morning. John, if you just stand for a moment, and we can thank you for coming to worship with us. I had a chance to talk with John just for a moment before the service, commiserating with what a challenge it must be if you are the treasurer, the guy who writes the checks for a state that can't seem to pay for the checks that it's trying to write. Uh, that's a tough, tough role to play, but we're grateful for you playing that role. And, uh, you know, the, the Bible teaches us something than the news teaches us, which I probably make this point a thousand times over. Uh, the news teaches us to criticize those in government. The Bible teaches us to pray for those in government and for those who lead us and care for our needs as a community. So please pray for John. I know that's one of the things he would love to have us doing for him is to pray for him as he seeks to serve the state and these difficult times. Uh, the other person I want to introduce you to is, is new to being a teenager. Uh, today is his birthday, and he is my favorite 13-year-old, and that would be my son, Seth, who is turning 13 today. Sorry to all the rest of the 13-year-olds here. Uh, you're special, but you're not my favorite. Sorry. But, yeah. uh, well, here's a bit of a quiz this morning as we get into God's Word. Open your Bible to the Ten Commandments. Yeah. And you might be saying, uh, can, you, can you tell us where that is? Uh, I know I've heard of the Ten Commandments. Uh, here would be the other quiz, and I won't, I won't ask anybody, I won't give you a written test or nothing, but can you say all 10 of the 10 commandments? Like, so right now, if there was a handout quiz going on, and you had to, all right, number one, number two, and had to go through those guys, how, how would you do in this category? Well, here's what I want to do. I'm going to do something this morning that... Uh, and, you know, every once in a while I'll get somebody who will say, you know, Keith, attending church here feels like going to a college course. Um, well, you know, I, I, we try to make things as clear as possible, as, as biblically simple as possible. Uh, some of us aren't super gifted in making things as simple as they might need to be. But can I also challenge you that God never intended you to stay in first grade as a Christian? He did intend you to go to college. He intended you to know him deeply. He intended you to take all this wonderful doctrine that it's in Scripture and see it and not develop a pattern of coming to the Bible, grabbing a verse that, that makes me feel a certain way, memorizing it, and seeing how I can use it this week to motivate me. Um, there is rich truth here in the Scriptures, and, and we as believers are called to know these things deeply. And so, no apology, I'm about to take a pretty complicated swing at something today. Uh, hopefully, I've tried to make this as simple as possible for us. Let me start with this thought. Most all of us have heard of the Ten Commandments. We've heard of the law. We've heard of priests in the Bible. We've heard something about tabernacles in the Bible. So if I were to say, you know, go find that stuff, it almost be like a map search, right? We're trying to 
trying to find these, these pieces of the story. And so we come across the Ten Commandments. All right, great, you've discovered the Ten Commandments. Now what do you do with that? How do you make use of it? What does it mean for your life? How do you understand why those Ten Commandments were given? Right now, if we had a hard time finding it, we might really, really have a hard time understanding, are we using it correctly when we arrive at it? Right? Well, here's what's helpful. I mean, if, you, if you look on a map, you know, I tell you to look for particular cities in the United States. You know, you'd, you'd just be bumping around from, you know, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Houston, Dallas. You'd be looking at these cities. What you might not notice, you probably would notice this if you backed away, you'd notice a different set of labels, a little bigger than the cities. They'd be states, right? So you might notice Louisiana, you might notice Texas. And I tell you something you probably will never notice when you go to do your map search. You'll never notice the words North America. The continent, right? The big picture of where you are. Well, when we come to Scripture, sometimes we, we need to kind of back away from a particular passage or something like the Ten Commandments, and we need to see something bigger because these Ten Commandments are fitting into a bigger storyline, right? So we got to see the continent that the Ten Commandments is a part of, but to see the continent, so to speak, is to see the, the covenants of God in Scripture. Right? We've heard that word covenant, but what exactly is a covenant. And I don't, I'm not going to go into great detail on that, but, but if you turn real quickly before we get to the book where the Ten Commandments are found, still letting you look for that, by the way. <clears throat> Everybody knows where Genesis is, so turn to Genesis real quickly. Something happened in God's creation. God created, it was good, it was a wonderful environment. And then as we heard in the word that was given this morning during worship, sin came in and touched our world. And this thing called the fall took place. But you know, from the moment of the fall, God was never on his heels trying to figure out what to do. God's plan has always been in place. And you and I are, are in that plan. So there's this, this big storyline that everybody in the scripture is in this storyline. And every one of us are in this storyline. And, and I want to make a big deal out of that because most of us live in a world that's taught us to find our own storyline. Find what you're good at. Find your talent. You know, who are you related to? What would you like to do? Dream big. And, and it's almost like you're this independent contractor in the world trying to find your way through life to find what storyline do you want to have? But God has created every one of us to fit in a bigger storyline. You know, right? So I'm, while I'm staring at New Orleans, there's this big North America thing that I'm a part of. And in the Bible, I can look at my life, but my life is a part of something much bigger. And my life will never be more rewarding to me than when it is plugged into that bigger picture. I need to hear that. You need to hear that. Because there's a lot of stuff out there that sounds fun. It sounds thrilling. It sounds adventurous. It sounds like you've got to find out what it is. You watch it. You see it on TV. It's portrayed a certain way. What if the God of the universe has created you and wired you so that the most satisfying and rewarding thing you're ever going to do is to be a part of his bigger purpose. Well, that's true. Right? I tap into this bigger purpose, right? Genesis chapter 3, 
This is the story of the fall. The devil's already shown up. He's tempted Adam and Eve. and They have fallen for his trick. And God now is pronouncing what he's going to do. So he's bringing judgment upon the serpent in this moment. Verse 15, as he judges the serpent first, he says, one part of his judgment is, I will put, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head. Some translations say he will crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who is this passage referring to? This is a passage about Jesus Christ. So from the moment sin enters the world, God's plan is already in place and God is already working it out. And he is declaring that there is a day coming when this one particular seed of the woman, this unique person of all the people that will ever exist in this world is going to respond to what you did, serpent, by crushing your head. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush you. That day is waiting for us. And then you don't get out of the garden, right? You get to verse 21, and something interesting happens, right? The man and the woman, they've been hiding. They're naked. They're aware of their nakedness. Verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments or coverings of skins, and he clothed them. All right, well, there's something rich, rich, rich here. You know, he didn't go shopping at Walmart to find these clothes. Where did these clothes come from? Well, there were a couple of other creatures that were wearing them. <laughs> they were skins. What happened to those creatures when they lost their skins? They lost their lives, too. And so from the very beginning, God dealing with man's dilemma involves innocent bloodshed. The innocent are going to die in order to provide a covering for the sins of the guilty. All right, this is the storyline of God, and we're going to see it all over the place, right? So if we fast forward into this storyline, and, and please notice something, because I've titled this message, Putting Works in the Right Place. Putting Works in the Right Place. It belongs in the right place. All right, so from the very beginning, question, quiz as we move along, what works did Adam and Eve perform in order to get God to provide his son to crush the head of the serpent in this. What, do you, what works do you see them performing? What works do you see them performing to get skins that would cover their nakedness? Right? At this point, the only contribution Adam and Eve have made is a sinful one. They've, here, God, we just disobeyed you. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to send my son, and I'm going to cover your sin. That's what God's going to do. But not because works caused him to do it. You see that, right? All right, so we fast forward to Genesis chapter 12, and we get another insight about the covenant of God. Covenant is God's making promises that relate to his plan. Genesis 12, verse 1, we meet a man named Abraham, says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. Please notice the language where God tells people to do stuff. That's going to be helpful. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I 
will show you. All right, so there's a land involved now. They're going to a land, verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. So we just got introduced to God's plan. He wants to make a nation in a particular land. And I will bless you. So God's favor is going to be upon Abraham and his descendants. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. All right, now we fast forward 600 years and we come to the passage that we read last week when we arrived at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All right, does this sound at all like what God spoke with, with Abraham about? Yes, it does. It sounds just like what he said to Abraham. Right, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. He tells these people, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to be a special people to me, Abraham. You guys are going to be a special people to me. I'm going to bless you. God tells the nation, I'm going to bless you. So it, does this sound like God's doing something different yet? No. All right, now we fast forward 1,500 years into a passage that you're familiar with if you read the New Testament. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, but you are a chosen race. Now, who's the you here? Right? This is the church. This is people like you and me on the other side of the cross living in the new covenant. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Does this sound familiar? A people for his own possession. And here's why. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, so we're reading this storyline of God, right? We're trying to get from Genesis to Revelation. What is this God up to? Well, whether you start in Genesis chapter 3 or you put your finger and your foot down in 1 Peter chapter 2, it seems to me the same story continues. Does that seem that way to you? All right, well, th this would be what the covenants of God teach us. Covenants are moments in which God breaks in, makes an arrangement with people, and makes promises to them and tells them what to do as well, All right? So that's what you find in the covenants. Let me show you an interesting, hopefully an interesting slide here. All right, this, this is what I would sit under the, the category of the covenant of grace, right? From the moment of the fall, God began to reveal his promises to his people. And I'm, I'm going to go into more detail probably on this next week, right? So there's certain revelation given to Noah, right? God's destroyed the whole world in a flood. God made a special arrangement and promise to Noah that God used to rescue his family and to also preserve humanity. And he made a promise about the future, about whether he'd ever destroy the earth again. So very limited revelation to Noah, but nonetheless, a covenant and a promise is given to him. And then we fast forward, God relates to Abraham, which by the way, there, there's, there's no works that Noah performed in order for God to make this covenant with him or to make the promise that he would not destroy the earth. 
Right, so notice where works is in these things. We get to Abraham. And God chooses to make a covenant with a man named Abraham that we'll read a little bit more about his story in just a moment on the basis of grace. Not on the basis of works. Abraham didn't work and therefore God says, well, hey, because of, because of what you've done, now I'm going to make this really great deal with you. That's not how we get the covenant with Abraham. Then God makes a covenant at Mount Sinai, which is where we're visiting right now. And God gives the Ten Commandments and God gives the law and all kinds of revelation takes place. If we move a little farther along in Scripture, we're going to find a covenant made with David. We'll give more details about that as well. And then this culminates later in the New Covenant. All right, so question, is there continuity between the moment of the fall and God begin to enact his plan and make promises and make covenants is there continuity from one covenant to the next that brings us to the new covenant? Or, next slide, is this the covenant of grace? God enacts a plan back at the fall. There's the Noahic covenant. That's, that's grace. There's no works there. There's the Abrahamic covenant. That's grace. There's no works there. But then there's this weird anomaly. It's called the Mosaic covenant. It's got commands in it. Ten of them at least. If I read carefully, there's a lot more than that. And there's this thing called the law. And it sounds like it's not the same as all the other covenants. It sounds like this one is based on if you do good enough, then God says, I will be to you something. And I will treat you a certain way. And I will count you as my people. But if you do good enough, if you keep my Ten Commandments, if you keep my law, right, is this the way the Bible flows? Don't raise your hands, but how many of you have ever asked the question, how did the people in the Old Testament get saved? Right, you don't have to, at some point in your Christian life uh, and you're reading your Bible, you ask that question, right? I ask that question. Because it just seems like there's just something different going on in the Old Testament, doesn't there? So apparently, there was a way for them to get saved, and then there's a way for us to get saved. And isn't our way a whole lot better? Amen? Oh, you just fell for my trick. I just pulled a Peter on you, and none of y'all knew it. Don't, don't answer questions like that. You're better just to go, don't, don't answer. Because it gives away the thought that, so there was a different way in the Old Testament that people got saved? And then when we get to the New Testament, we got the really good deal. But this is what that installs in you. It makes you look back on the Old Testament hostile toward it. Because it's a bad deal. That thing's a bad deal. It's got all kinds of problems with it, man. We got the good deal. We're in the New Testament. We're in the New Covenant. That's a distortion of what we find in the Bible. Right? You, you can... I'm going to have this, this scripture passage. You probably have this scripture passage memorized. Right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Everybody, If you're a Christian, you should have these scriptures memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not as a result of works. It is a gift of God lest any man should boast. All right, so how does a person get saved? He gets saved by Grace, all right? All right, you guys remember my engineering background. I've got to use my education somewhere. Let's play with some math formulas for a moment. Here is the salvation equation. 
Grace, right, this is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, salvation equation. Grace plus faith equals salvation, but there's, there's this thing called works. A salvation that expresses works. All right, so I want you to see that in the salvation equation, there are works. You want to take me out back and stone me afterwards? All right. Because I know we kind of want to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, no, 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 no. There's no works in the salvation equation. Oh, no, no, no. There, there are works. And if you put them in the right place, you won't have such a freaked out response to works. The problem's not that there are works in the salvation equation. The problem is where you put the works in the salvation equation. But this, this is a small thing that's a major thing. Because the alternative to putting works in the wrong place is just ignoring them altogether. And that's not a good alternative either. Works need to go in the right place. Right, so... This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It's the way in which anybody who ever gets saved, gets saved. Abraham was saved this way. David was saved this way. Moses is saved this way. You and I are saved this way. There wasn't a different way, and then all of a sudden the New Testament invented a new way. Everybody who ever got saved from the moment of the fall forward was already sinfully corrupted, and their only hope of restoration to God was grace. Sin had already come on the scene. The, the ship has already sailed that anybody would ever live a perfect life based in works that could be acceptable to God. That day is over. Your only hope to be saved now is by the grace of God. Now, subtly, how about this for a salvation equation? This is actually a legalism equation. Works that, no, go back, works that create grace plus our faith equals salvation. That's what legalism is. If you're looking for a definition of legalism, that's what legalism is. And where does legalism come from? It comes from putting works in the wrong place. It comes from the idea that it's what I do with my life that motivates God to be gracious toward me. And then I believe that grace, and then I'm saved. But the key mover and shaker is what you do to get God to ever move on your behalf. That's not the covenant of grace. That's not Ephesians chapter 2. That's legalism. And it, it can be pretty subtle. It can control whether or not you believe you're even in relationship with God, and it can control what you think God has permission to do next in your life. Because if, if you've got this formula operating in your life, every day of your life is about what do you need to do to get God to do what he needs to do. And that could be all kinds of works. It could be, just, it could be prayer. It could be being nice to people. It could be cutting out some of the bad language in your life. It can be paying your tithe. It can be whatever. It could be things you read in the Bible. It could be reading the Bible. And we pollute what God has done by making his grace on the basis of what we do to create it. 
All right, let's take apart Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go back, go to that next slide. All right, here's, here's what we find in this equation, right? For by grace, you've been saved through faith. So here's our ingredients, our three main ingredients that we want to look at. We want to look at grace, we want to look at faith, and we want to look at works and see if, if we can understand them a little bit better so that when we go to pick up the Mosaic Covenant and handle the Ten Commandments, we do so informed by the whole Bible when we go to do it. That's what we're trying to accomplish, right? So let's look at grace first in our lives. Classic definition, grace equals unmerited favor, right? If you've been around Christianity at all and heard any kind of explanation for grace, you've probably heard that definition. And, and it's, it's got helpful, helpful thoughts there with us. So I don't want to complicate it any more than that. It is unmerited favor. It is unearned, unworked for benefit and blessing upon your life. It is unmerited relationship with God. It is not something that your performance has provided you with. It's unmerited. But, but grace, that's a great definition, but, but there's more to grace than that. And if, if you see the, the more to it, grace also means that God finds reasons to do what he does within himself. Grace means God is the great initiator of activity, not the great responder. God doesn't stand on the sidelines watching humanity and watching your life just waiting for the day that you're going to finally do something that he can feel good about and become for you. That's not grace. Grace doesn't need you to provide a reason for him to act. Grace is inside of God. There's a compelling internal pressure, if you will, inside of God that he's motivated to take the actions that he takes. That's grace, right? Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, this is revisiting, by the way, Mount Sinai and the covenant made there. Deuteronomy 7. Here's an explanation for these folks being God's people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Well, why is that? Well, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Well, all right. Well, then, God, why would you do that? Why would you choose us? Well, let me think for a moment. We've been on a hot streak lately. I mean, us and the Golden State Warriors are synonymous with moral behavior. We are on a hot streak. We, I'm like, as a nation, as a people, as an individual, I'm pretty undefeated right now. Yeah, okay, yeah. I think I get why God would choose me. All right, you got to raise a question. Why, why are you a Christian? Why are they the people of God? Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, right? In spite of your temptation to think God chose us because we're pretty awesome, the opposite is true. God chose 
And the New Testament says the same thing. Things that were foolish of the world. Things that were unwise God chose. God wanted to make it very, very clear. I'm not choosing that because of that. I'm not choosing you, Israel, because you're very impressive. Matter of fact, of all the nations, you're like the worst. <laughs> so I'm going to choose so I can be clear about why I did this. Okay, God, why did you do it? Here's why, verse 8. It is, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God, why did you do this? Why did you choose us to be your people and then bless us and rescue us out of Egypt and bring us to yourself? Why did you do that, God? Because I love you. Not because you're so lovable, but because I love you. And I made a covenant promise that I'm keeping to you. Oh, well, okay, well, why'd you make the covenant promise? All right, well, Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2, we get this explanation later on in the history of Israel. It says, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. God did what then? Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river. God, when did you do that? When Abraham was an idol worshiper. That's when I did that. Wait, wait, wait. you mean Abraham didn't like get his act together and present himself to you and abandon all the false gods? No, no, no. When I showed up in his life, he didn't know me from the moon. Matter of fact, that's who he was worshiping when I showed up. And I chose him. Because of works, God, you chose him? No, not because of works. And then look what it, Joshua goes on and explains, right? Jo Joshua's years after Mount Sinai here when he's writing. He says, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, led him through all the land of Canaan, and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. Afterwards, I brought you out. All right, what did Abraham do that motivated God to choose him? Nothing. What did the children of Israel do in Egypt that motivated God to come and rescue them out of Egypt? No works here. The basis was his love for them. And the covenant promise that he made to Abraham, again, because of his love for Abraham. God had a reason in himself that didn't need to get provided for by others. Now, Romans chapter 9, this could not be any more clear. And this is in the Bible. And we need to read verses like this, right? You might not read these in first grade, but at some point, you got to get past first grade. Romans 9, verse 10. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children, right, we're going back to the wife of Isaac, by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, because of God's choice. She was told the older will serve the younger. God made a decision. God made a decision. Now listen, before you start saying, well, that seems to be unfair for the one that wasn't chosen. Can you, can you adjust your thinking for a second and put this in this category? If God doesn't choose, no one is going to be acceptable to God. Have you ever thought about that? It's almost like, well, you know, both the twins were equally deserving of a choice. No, 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 no. They were equally deserving of condemnation. And the only hope they had is that a, a sovereign, gracious God would have a love in his heart to choose anybody. Because they're not going to choose God. This is a gracious moment on God's behalf. This is how grace operates. God has reasons in himself to do the things that he has done. All right, so at Mount Sinai, question, is God looking for something in them? To make them his people or something in him to make them his people. Right? Before you make the covenant at Mount Sinai into some strange anomaly, ask yourself the question, is God setting up a system by which he can now look to something in man as the basis for which he will relate to them? The works of the law. Is that what God's doing at Mount Sinai? Right? Exodus 19 Remember, when we get to Exodus 19, they were already God's people by God's sovereign grace. God's rescue of them out of Egypt and bringing them to dwell in the promised land is fulfillment of an existing covenant promise. Right? They don't get to Mount Sinai and face this question. If you perform the Ten Commandments and the law, then I will make you my people. They do not, that's not what you read in Exodus. Now, I know, it. how is it that we stand in the new covenant, though, when we look back on the old covenant and go, no, 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 that's exactly the deal of the old covenant. That's exactly how it worked. God told them, if you keep the Ten Commandments and my law, then, and you see, that didn't work. See what a bad idea that was, don't you? Thank God we're in the new covenant, brother. Okay. They were already God's people when they showed up. Remember this in Exodus chapter 3? Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. We haven't gotten to Mount Sinai yet. They're already his people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites. Where do we hear that promise? to Abraham I'm going to give you a land and God spelled out the land and told him it was a land flowing with milk and honey so this is not that graph we had up earlier where God had this intention right he's gonna he's not gonna destroy anymore covenant with Noah he's gonna pick a special people and bless them and give them a land covenant with Abraham and then there's this weird thing showing up in at Moses that we don't know what to do with so we stick it off on the side because it's different well, really, right here, we're told that whatever I was doing with Abraham, I'm still doing. And the reason I rescued you out of Egypt was to continue that plan. I'm going to bring you into that land. 
This is the continuation of what God's plan has always been. This is not a detour. They're not being detoured at Mount Sinai to get introduced to something else. God is continuing his plan. Graham Goldsworthy writes a great book called According to Plan. He says, the first word at Sinai was a word about grace and covenant to which an obedient response was demanded. Oh, oh, shoot, did you hear that? Works have shown up. Graham, did you notice works? Did anybody else notice works? Really? Obedient? That sounds like works, doesn't it? Demanded? God made demands? Oh, that definitely sounds like works, doesn't it? He is their God, and he has saved them. On this basis, the law is given. Clearly, all the conditional statements notwithstanding, the law is given to those who have already experienced the grace of God and salvation. And it's not the basis upon which they will be saved. The task of obedience is given because the relationship of sonship has already been established as an undeserved gift. The task of obedience, any idea of works does come in, but it comes in in the right place. What about, what about faith? Go back to my... What about this other thing called faith? We're saved by grace, this God-initiated, love-motivated, internal purpose of God that is unmerited and in, in the object of what he does. But there's this thing called faith, right? You just can't teach this idea that, well, God just kind of has this wide open, doesn't matter what anybody does, feel to him. Well, that's, that's grace without faith. If I pull faith out of this equation, the equation collapses. It no longer brings about salvation. So when you hear the world today talking about God, what it wants to say to you is God is totally unconditional. God just loves everybody exactly the same way. You know, I love this idea of grace. Well, that's not exactly what grace is. That's a poor definition for grace. And, And then... What is faith? What exactly is that? Wayne Grudem says, faith is trust or dependence on God based on the fact that we take him at his word and believe what he has said. Like John Frame's thought, he says, theologians have traditionally analyzed faith according to three elements, knowledge, belief, and trust. Right? If you have faith the way the Bible describes faith, It is attached to specific knowledge. It's just not this feel-good, I believe everything's going to work out in the end. It is specifically agreeing with what God has said. It's knowledgeable about what God said. So faith, the most important thing about faith is not faith. It's the object of your faith. Do you believe what God said? Well, I don't even know if I know what God said. Well, that's, that's a problem, isn't it? Because the faith of the Bible is supposed to be a faith in what God has said. And it is, a, it is a believing what God has said. God, what you said, I believe it, and I put my trust in it. I put my, the hope of my life is transferred to what you have said. I don't hold anything back. That's what faith is. Wayne Grudem <clears throat> describes faith this way. He says, but we may ask why God chose faith to be the attitude of the heart by which we would obtain justification. 
Well, it's apparently because faith is the one attitude of the heart that is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. When we come to Christ in faith, we essentially say, I give up. I will not depend on myself or my own good works any longer. I know that I can never make myself righteous before God. Therefore, Jesus, I trust you and depend on you completely to give me a righteous standing before God. In this way, faith is the exact opposite of trust in ourselves. And therefore, it is the attitude that perfectly fits salvation that depends not at all on our own merits, but entirely on God's free gift of grace. Years ago, people coming to a relationship with Christ would, would sometimes use the term surrender, a surrendered to Christ. Um, there's a dimension of that that's, that's very helpful. That's, that's probably not a full enough expression. But at some point, you, you have got to stop being your own means of a good life or a saved life or a righteous life or a, a life filled with hope right? Struggling, striving, trying to build a life filled with hope. At some point, biblical faith comes before Jesus Christ and says, I, I surrender to you, specifically to you. I yield over the ownership of this existence to you. I surrender to you. That's the first step biblical faith has to take to truly trust God. And stop depending on your own works. Remember this passage in Galatians chapter 2. Verse 16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Not justified. But through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Whatever God was doing at Mount Sinai, he was not setting that system up. Here's 10 rules and a bunch of other ones. If you'll just keep them, you'll be justified. And here we learn, no, psych, just fakes you out. Wanted you to think that, but no, wasn't doing that. I'll explain later. It's not what God was doing. Not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Not Abraham, not Moses and Aaron, not King David. No one will be justified by works of the law. Now, if you're sitting here today and part of you is going, yeah, yeah I mean, that's, that's what I believe about about God and about grace, yeah. But if, if I pulled you aside on the way in here this morning and I'd said, hey, look, I, I, just, I just had this strange impression that when you leave here today, you're going to get in a terrible car accident and you're going to die and you're going to stand before God. Do you think he's going to let you in to heaven? You know what the answer I usually get to that question is? Well, um, I think so. I hope so. Which gets followed up with, well, why do you hope so? Why do you think that might happen? 
Well, um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I, I've, I've lived a decent life. I've, I've lived a pretty good life. Do you recognize that equation? So you're going to present something that you did so that God can be gracious to you. You're going to jumpstart God's grace, aren't you? Oh, yeah, you get you're not perfect. But when you stand before God, you're going to mention what you've been doing? Seriously? Did you listen to Evan about the God we just got introduced to at the mountain? See, this is why it helps for you to read the whole Bible. Because the God you met at the mountain made you wet your pants, didn't he? He freaked everybody out. There was lightning going everywhere, and there was threats that if you even touch the mountain, you're done. That God, you're going to stand before him and say, well, you know, look, God, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not great or anything, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad, really, not that bad. You're going to tell this God you're not that bad. See, I, I mean, I, I'm... I'm not trying to be weird when I try to freak you out about what God's like. I mean, this is not damn. Well, Keith, what do you find? Like the weirdest passages in the Bible and preach from them? No, I just want to save you from the biggest mistake of your life. And I also want to save you from living your life on the basis of the biggest mistake. The idea that you can mention what you've been doing as though my goodness jumpstarts God's grace. Oh, oh, don't get me wrong. See, I've heard all this stuff. I just got it all screwed up in my head. I've heard grace. Yeah, Keith, I've heard that God is forgiving. God is loving. God is just, he's merciful. I've heard all that. Jesus went to the cross. Yeah, I believe all that. But then when I press your button and you give me an answer, it starts with your goodness. It doesn't start with God's grace. Therefore, you're being saved by an equation of legalism. The basis for God being good to you is you. And that's not in the Bible. It's not even the old covenant. It's a really problematic thing to believe. Do you have any idea how much grace is dripping out of the Mount Sinai meeting? I know, because we've been taught, you know, well, no, man, it was law. God is laying down the law, merciless law, keep it. Okay. So all right, just real quick, when they get to Mount Sinai, were they taught to look to their works in order to deal with their guilty sin before God? Is that what they were being taught? Right? Hey, you're showing up in the mountain here. Everybody's aware of their sin. There's a lot of it going on. Just look around. If you're not sure about it here, read the law. It'll show you that that was sin and that was sin and that was sin and that was sin. And those three things over there were sin too. All right, so welcome to an introduction to sin in the law. We're going to learn about, about that when we read through this document. But if you do something wrong, which everybody has, you're just going to have to double up and work extra hard. Is that what... Is that what you learned in Mount Sinai? Because before we ever got here, I, I, I was introduced to this concept called the Passover meal. You remember that? Before they get to Mount Sinai, just two and a half months earlier, they're taking an innocent animal, slitting its throat, draining its blood out, and spreading it over the doorposts of their home so that God will see the blood of an innocent animal and pass over and not judge them. But, but you're going to tell me that 
that Sinai was installing a system of works to make them right with God. Then we get to Mount Sinai, and the center of all that God's going to say is the Day of Atonement. This, This day in which guilty sinners who are cut off from God because this God will zap you from the mountain, he's so pure, that God, who doesn't sweep anything away and ignore it, that God, has created a means for people to live in forgiveness. Was it doubling up on their works? Try extra hard. At least nine out of ten? No. It was each year, I want you to pay attention to something. I want you to bring these animals. I won't go through the whole thing. We'll we'll, we'll look at it more carefully. But there's two particular animals. There is a couple of goats here. One of them gets the, the tough job. He gets to have his throat slit and blood is going to be taken from him to teach people yet again the same lesson that was taught in the Garden of Eden. The innocent are going to have to die for the guilty. Same story. And that blood's going to be sprinkled on the mercy seat before God so that he can have a, a reason, a condition for grace. I didn't know conditions and grace went together. Oh, yeah. God sees the blood of the innocent one and he is merciful towards the nation. And then the other goat, the high priest is going to lay his hands and represent all the people and he's going to confess their guilty sin on this animal and they're going to run this goat off. You've heard of the scapegoat, right? They're going to run this goat off with the guilty sin out into the wilderness as a picture of God taking their sin away from them. Where do we learn this stuff? At Mount Sinai, under the old covenant that should be looked at by Christians as, well, that was a, that was a deal. That, well, aren't you glad you're in the new covenant? Well, they were saved by grace through faith, just like the rest of us. This is not some system that was invented to displace the idea of salvation by grace. Right? So in all these covenants works are included in them. Somewhere, works get included, right? So when we read in Ephesians chapter 2, we're saved by grace through faith, that faith is a gift from God, not as a result of works, but then no one memorizes the next verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should do them. That's right on the heels of you were saved by grace through faith. So works shows up in this conversation. And if you know where to put it, it might revolutionize your life. It might keep you from legalism, and it might release you into something incredible of the purpose of God. You know know the faith chapter, right? I'll give you a quiz on this, but if you turn to the faith chapter... Thank you, Hebrews chapter 11. Please, no cheating. Don't give answers to the other students, please. Hebrews chapter 11. This is a faith chapter, right? It's going to be all about faith. So we hear about guys like Noah. God's covenant with Noah. Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah 
being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear did something. He performed works. He constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So where did his righteousness come from? By building the ark? Did he get righteous by building the ark? No. But being made righteous, he obeyed God and he built the ark. Works. The man did works. He just put his works in the right place. Didn't mess the equation up. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed obeyed grace and obedience go together they're not hostile to one another abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going he went out he obeyed god and went wherever it was that god was calling him but that's not what made him righteous before god that did not justify him at all that did not create god's grace in his life that was his response to God saving him by grace. And then later on, he's going to continue to walk in faith in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. That's an activity. That's a, that's a performance. That's a work. He took his son, the son of promise, and he entrusted him to God and offered him to God. And of course, God didn't take Isaac's life when he did that. Right, do you understand? Obedience works. They're not curse words if you put them in the right place. Why is it that we inaugurate the new covenant? The mission of the new covenant church gets inaugurated by Jesus Christ saying, go and preach the gospel, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you there's that nasty old covenant word command oh my gosh command listen i have i have had discussions with christians who are allergic to imperatives in the bible anytime god says do something oh that can't possibly mean what it means listen let me explain that you know like like it's really all that complicated the reason why you're so weirded about commands, conditions. Some people read conditions in the Bible and it's like they want to go, hey, wait, I must have got a misprint here. There's conditions on me doing stuff. If you abide in my word and my word abides in you. If, wait, you can't use the word if. We're under grace for goodness sake. Well, if you keep your works on the other side of the equation, you could read your Bible and let it say what it says. It's a really cool thing. You wouldn't have to be going, no, I can't possibly mean that. Can't mean that. Because, you know, in grace, it just doesn't matter. Anything that we do, it just doesn't matter. No, no. Listen, if, if you make this mistake, right, you, you come to, give me my legalism formula. Do I have that coming up here? Just change screens. It should be up here. Thank you. Um, if you make this mistake... If you put one of your hands on the doctrine of justification, being God's people, being right with God, and you put your other hand on works, a giant alarm will sound. Okay, you, you cannot make that connection. 
If, however, you put your hand on the mission and purpose of God and you put your hand on works, no alarm will go off. You don't have to kick all those Bible passages out of the Bible because they're not intended to justify you. They don't make you right with God. But they're there because they fulfill something of God's purpose. Now, let me just close with this thought. Eric, you can come back up here. I, have, I, I said this last week, and please, if you're, if you're a young person here, or you'd like to think you're a young person, listen very, very carefully. If you're a person who is what I'm going to call a distant disciple, you, you kinda, you're in church sometimes, read your Bible sometimes, can, can I just be very concerned for you in this category? Because here's what you've done. You have, you have taken the idea of works, and you, you've not relocated them to justify you, because quite honestly, if you thought your works would justify you, you'd be working your butt off to make it happen. So everybody runs around saying, yeah, that, I'm prone to legalism. Oh, really? Let me see your time slots. Let me see what you're doing. I'll tell you how prone you are to legalism. Because if you really were prone to legalism, you'd wake up in the morning trying to figure out what I need to perform for God today to get God to be okay with me. And you'd busy your day all day long with a never-ending set of tasks that, by the way, would never make you right with God. Most people are not legalists. Most people are, are licensors. Most people just take works and just boot it out of the equation altogether. They don't even talk about works. So we're saved by grace. Ah, I'm good on that. Faith, yeah, I, I'm believing that. I'm good that that's good. And we're saved. Ah, that's me. I'm saved. That's it. Any works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, is that, is that happening in your life? Or did you just boot works out? Let me just warn you. If you boot works out, those kind of works, if you boot them out, you're booting out what Abraham walked in. You're booting out what Noah walked in. You're, you're booting out the activity where God meets you and he becomes real to you. And so you will go on with a bunch of ideas floating around in the back of your head that are not real. Young people, if you don't have a priority for obedience to God and serving God, your Christianity has got no expression to it. You take a step of faith, right? Abraham at some point says, God, I'm going to obey you, and I'm going to leave Ur the Chaldees. I'm leaving my business, my people, my protection, everything that possibly I put my, my hope and my security in, and I'm stepping out into the great unknown. I don't know what's going to happen to me, and you know what I'm going to have to do right now? I'm going to have to look to you, God. By performing obedient works, Abraham was forced to trust God and to look to him. And therefore, God showed up one time after another. And you meet Abraham on the road later on, and God is real to that man because he walked in obedience and served God's purpose. If you decide, I'm just going to be saved. Yeah, I know that there's this great call going on. You know, Abraham had to leave Ur. The, I'm just going to stay in Ur. I'm just going to hang out here. I mean, after all, saved by grace, Keith, you know. If I stay in Ur or if I don't stay in Ur, it's not like I'm going to hell. That's a weird idea, isn't it? 
why don't you answer? If you wanted to live that way, why don't you give Abraham permission to live that way? And see if your Bible makes a lot of sense after that. God had this incredible purpose. Abraham, I'm calling you into that purpose. Your next step needs to be to obey me and serve me. Nation of Israel, come meet me at the mountain here. I'm calling you into this purpose. I've got something for you to do in this world. I want you to have a worldwide, global impact the same way that Abraham was supposed to have. You're supposed to declare something about me to this world, to show my glory and let it fill the earth. Get to work. Oh, well, God, you can't, you can't command me to do things. But that's not grace. Grace doesn't expect anything. Grace doesn't expect anything on the other side of the equation. It expects lots on that side of the equation. How many Christians have developed some warped sense of grace? Can I just tell you? It's warped because of the way you look at what happened at Mount Sinai. And we're, we're going to address some of this as we move through Mount Sinai. God doesn't hate Mount Sinai in the New Covenant. He hates people misusing what was at Mount Sinai in the New Covenant. God never offered to fallen man a plan to save himself through his works. God's plan has always been the same. A covenant of grace that needed the innocent son of God to come and take the place of the guilty to make us right with God. Passover lamb, ram sacrificed for the sake of the guilty at the day of atonement. It's the consistent message of God. It's God's message to us today. Now, this morning, let me, let me get you to think for a moment. Let me ask you to listen differently, too. Right? We, we believe here in the active presence of God among us. Right, so we don't just believe you're, you're here today to listen to some guy talk for a while. You're, you're here today to encounter the presence of God. So the Spirit of God dwells with us. He uses his word and he teaches us, but he, he wants to bring this to you to your particular heart and where you are in this world, in your walk, in what you understand. So let me just ask you, maybe just bow your head and get, get, get listening on the inside. Get listening to God being personal with you for a moment. We can mislocate works in a couple of different ways. Maybe if I asked you about why God would let you into heaven, your answer honestly would have had something to do with how good or decent at least you have been. Are you here this morning living your relationship with God not on the basis of God's grace initiated by him, but conditioned by your works. Your works are creating God's response to you to make you his people, to justify you, to feel right about you. Being a good person somehow in your mind is part of why you're right with God. That's misplaced works. Sin has polluted every good thing you've ever done. 
And along the way in life, you've done plenty of wrong things as well. You are disqualified. I am disqualified. It's not a one of us can stand before God on the basis of what we've done. God's grace comes to us and says, I will make your standing with me on the basis of my own love and my own covenant, which my son will fulfill all the conditions for it. There are conditions. They're going to be met by somebody besides you. And then you will be my people, a treasured possession of all the peoples in all the world to show forth the praises and excellences of my life. Because the first response for that has got to be surrender. It's got to be an end to my own efforts to attain righteousness with God. I have to just surrender and let Jesus Christ's righteousness become mine. And maybe you'd like to do that this morning. You can do that right now. Right? You can lift your heart and lift your hands to God and say, God, Lord, I surrender this morning. No longer am I going to try and create the reason for you to be all right with me. I'm going to rest in what Jesus Christ did. He did enough. He did it all. I trust him. His perfect life, his sinless death, the innocent one taking my place, the guilty. I put my faith, just like Abraham had to do, in a day that would come where forgiveness would come by the innocent dying for the guilty. I do the same this morning. I put my faith in your grace because of your son. You may be here this morning and you have already come to a relationship with Christ and you, you understand that it can't possibly be based on you being good enough. You get that. But this morning, can you be honest in the presence of God this morning? Be honest. Are you actively concerned with obedience to God? Are you here this morning aware of particular ways you are serving God's purpose? Your life is about obeying God and serving his purpose. Just think for a moment. Is that what describes how you're approaching life? Or are, are you just busy, you got a lot going on, kind of well-intended, but God doesn't seem to find his way into that. Listen, have you made the mistake of inviting God into your purpose? You've heard of a God who loves to bless and he loves to be good to people. And you've got a plan and you want this God to bless that plan. Or did you come to a God whose purpose since Genesis chapter 3 has been to restore people to himself and to declare his glory into this world. And when he saved you, he brought you into that purpose so that you might obey him and serve his purpose. Listen, if you're here this morning, you got that backwards. Your God is calling on you to repent, to turn from that. Say, God, I've got my wires crossed. I have made the mistake of asking you to fulfill my purpose rather than me living to obey you to fulfill your purpose. And God, today I want to change that. 
God, I, I don't want to do it that way anymore. I want to do it your way. I want my life to be characterized by the works that you prepared beforehand, that I should walk in them. Lord, what a, what a glorious thought. You mean there's stuff for me to do that fulfills the purpose that you have in this world and in my life? God, I want to be about that. Tell God that this morning. Tell him from this day forward, God, that's, that's how I want my life to be described. I live my life in obedience to God to serve his great purpose that he has graciously made me a part of. God, for every heart this morning that's responding, Lord, we are responding to the love and grace that's inside of you. Lord, this is not us working you into something. You have postured yourself graciously toward us. This morning, God, we want to respond to that grace. We want to respond with obedience. We want to respond with serving. We want to be about the adventure, God. We want to leave Ur, the Chaldees, the land that we've created, and we want to go wherever it is you're calling us to go. You know what? I want to challenge you. I want to make this personally an awareness for you. Every one of us is tempted to stay in earth, stay in the land that we've created, stay where it is that we're comfortable, to not obey God in faith. But that's not how we're called to live. So as we close in this song, here's what I want to ask you to do. Are you willing to obey God and leave wherever it is that you're busy trying to stay in? go wherever it is that God wants you to go. Careful. Sobering, isn't it? Makes God become real, doesn't he? You stay where you are, God doesn't need to be real to you. Just keep doing what you're doing. But if you're going to take a step of faith and you're going to say, you know what, God, I'm going to obey you. And look, I don't know what your Ur of the Chaldees, your Ur of the Chaldees could be greed or materialism. It could be comfort. It could be sexual immorality. I don't know what your Ur of the Chaldees is. But God is saying, in that area of your life, take a step of obeying me. And watch God meet you. You want to have a real experience with God? You start walking by faith where God's got to show up in your life. He's got to because you're, you're going to fall flat on your face if he doesn't. Now, if that's how you'd like to respond to God's grace. If you'd like to do that kind of works, why don't you stand up right now where you are? Why don't you stand up, make a declaration to your own heart that you are willing to obey God and go wherever God is calling you to go. You trust him that way. know for many of us this means new ground this means getting out of the things that we're comfortable with or keeping on doing the things that we've not even sure you wanted us doing those things we've just been doing them I mean, we want to be about the works that matter or not to make us right we're not making ourselves right with you can't do that but God we want to get about the kingdom we want to get about fulfilling the purpose that you created us and called us to yourself. So Lord, we sing this song with our hearts looking to you as we say, God, we will follow you.
obey you. In Jesus' name.
of any works that we've done we thank you for that grace may we carry it out into the world as we leave today and be beacons of hope changed by you God in Jesus name amen